The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Joining us here in studio, David Kotak, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer for Cumberland Advisors. They are based in Sarasota, Florida, and he helps manage more than $3 billion of customer assets. He is also the author, co-author rather, of the book Adventures in Muniland. David Kotak, welcome and merry one day past Christmas. Are we going to see a recession in 2019? I don't think so. Pim, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to all my friends here at Bloomberg. I came up here to get cold because in Florida we need a little cold air to wake us up. (laughs) So uh, delighted you provided it. Okay, but uh, we've woken you up. But why why are you sanguine about 2019 in terms of a potential recession? 70% of the U.S. economy is in services, fully employed, short shortage of people to fill all the jobs government who knows what the government's ever going to do we already are going through the umpty umpth iteration of a shutdown we will not have a permanent shutdown that's a forecast all forecasts come with a guarantee you invite me back you give me back the forecast i guarantee you i'll give you a new one so no shutdown that's permanent we're making a trade deal with china china's now going in the right direction cutting tariffs stimulating they are getting along there is no reason not to extend the truce and lastly the oil price every penny a gallon is a hundred and one and a half billion annualized tax cut to the American consumer. Penny a gallon, billion and a half annualized rate. We've had a few of those pennies in a row. That's why spending is up. That's why Amazon's got good news today. I don't see a recession. Worry? Yes. Recession? No. Well, you know, look, I mean, we look at the fundamentals. I think economists and market participants can all agree that there's still some pretty sound footing here. But then I go home for Christmas, every family member, all they want to ask about is, is the economy tanking? Is the stock market going to fall off a cliff? And I wonder when does sentiment really become uh, more of the sort of headwind than the fundamentals themselves? Well, that's a fundamental question we've asked ourselves since they traded stocks in the buttonwood tree. And still the same. I was not around then. I think Pim might might have been, right? Tim, Pim Ooh. was around. <laughs> wow, Pim. this is a theme for him. We're going to figure out how to get him. Romaine, let's beat him up for the next <laughs> yeah. 20 minutes, and we'll all get thrown out of here. You, you, you look at this, and you say, does sentiment drive the economy? Well, I guess there's, in a second derivative way, it does. People look at a 401k. They don't like what they see when they look at the 401k. We call it the wealth effect. You've talked about it. 
Does it stop somebody from buying something if their income permits it? Well, most of the people in the United States are not impacted by this big wealth effect shift. Now, they read about it in the newspaper, mm-hmm. but they're not impacted by it. Now, I notice, for example, there's a terrible crisis in the news this morning. The $70 million apartment in New York City is now being sold for $50 million, a markdown of price. Wow. You're a good negotiator, is, David Coates. Well, you got I, it down. I, this is listen, why you always wait to after Christmas to buy things, because yeah, everything goes that, Well, that's it. So, you know, do you, do you see the negative wealth effect of peaking prices of these phenomenally priced apartments in New York affecting the other 10 or 15 million people in the neighborhood. I'm not so sure it does. Okay, but having said that, to what do you ascribe the sell-off in stock prices? Because it's not as if the entire economy, I mean, it's not as if Boeing has changed. It's not as if Apple has changed dramatically in the last three months, or have have they changed that much? Well, that's that's a debate. We're going to find that out in another three or six months if we see reports that say there are major changes. There's interesting, you know the cliche, right? Stock market forecast nine of the last five recessions. Is this one of the half that is forecast incorrectly, or are we going to have a recession? The stock market got legitimate worries about Mattis, about Trump, about policies, about chaos in the White House. That's fair game. It reacted with the credit default swap spike last week on the United States. It trades in euro. It's in a a different exchange. Most American investors don't see it. This is pretty technical stuff. But the fact is, it's a reaction to chaos in Washington. And what's the reaction? You bid up the price, you take a position of the credit default swap on the United States, you do it in euro. Now you take the other side of the trade and you sell or short the U.S. stock market in dollar. And you saw the result happen in the foreign exchange market, dollar versus euro, and you saw it in gold. Gold went up. All those trades are tied. Those are very technical trades. They are fair game when you have chaos. We have Washington chaos. That's the cause. Our guest is David Kotak. He is the chairman and chief investment officer for Cumberland Advisors based in Sarasota, Florida, but he joins us here in studio. David Kotak, I'm wondering if there's a case to be made for bonds and yield for the 30-year bond at 3% who would buy such a debt? Only a preferred habitat, that's a technical term, buyer of an institutional type that needs to have very long duration, no risk. But there's a case to be made. You know, I've made it here with you before. For a 4% tax-free bond, it's sitting out there in the marketplace right now. So you say to yourself, 3%, taxable 30 years i don't want to touch it four percent tax-free high grade i'm going to get paid gross it up it's over six or seven depending on what state you're in it's liquid i can get out of it in a few days you're talking munis i'm talking munis look there's a i didn't write you know I, i get accused of a hammer looking for a nail because i say good things about munis let the muni yield get to the same level as the treasury doesn't have to go under get it to the same level 100 percent 
and I'll put the hammer in the in the shed and wait for the next round. But when the muni's 130% of the treasury, it's a buy. Americans don't want to buy these bonds. They're afraid the rates are going up. They're afraid of everything. So they're immobilized. And the only buyers in the muni space are the banks in the middle of the yield curve. And they use ladders which is a non-thinker's way of doing a muni. So they stagger the maturities, right? They stagger so much for the fifth year, sixth year, seven, eight, nine. And what they've done is bid up the prices in the middle of the yield curve, and they've left either end at the bargain. So what do you do? We do something that's called a barbell. We go a piece for the front and a piece for the back. We avoid the overpriced middle and use the barbell instead of a flat type of distribution. When you look at the bond market, though, I mean, one area that sort of jumped out at me is we've seen like a lot of the asset-backed uh, securities performing well. I mean, so we've seen people move out of munis. We've seen people move out of government debt, and they're starting to embrace a lot more. At least, you know, we, for most of the year, they were embracing, uh, uh, you know, the home, uh, the, the mortgage-backed debt as well as uh, auto loan-backed debt. And I wonder, are we going to see that continue? Because I see a lot of advisors sort of trying to push more people into that sector. Well, you get people who chase yield because mm-hmm. they can't stand the low yield, and they've had 10 years of chasing. So they chase high yield, or they chase structures they don't understand, and they bid up the price down comes the yield. We now have a situation with collateralized loans. Where's that going to end up? The high yield spread to high grade has widened in the last little bit mm-hmm. of time, yeah. a few weeks. Where does that end up? Well, how did it get to where it was? People chased yield, didn't understand where they were. I don't agree with chasing yield. In fact, the tighter the spreads, the more important the high grade becomes because you're not getting paid for the incremental risk to get a few basis points of yield. So I'm on the other side of that trade, Romain, and have been for, for some time. Yeah. A little bit more on munis. Do it through an ETF structure or a fund structure or go out and buy the actual bond because that, in a way, enforces discipline. Well, if you know how to research a muni, buy the actual bond. If you're not sure, read the paperwork on the ETF very carefully. We manage an ETF in munis. And I say to people, understand the structure of the ETF we're managing. Don't go buy it just because we're managing it. Dig. Understand. I, I would add one quick thing. There is great transparency in the state and local government space. Your school board passes a budget. You can go to the meeting. You can read the budget. It may be technical. The sewerage authority has to collect the sewer bills. The airport has certain planes landing. All the data is reliable. It's transparent. It's our government at work. People don't want to spend the time to find out about it. So they wring their hands about bonds generally, but they don't do the work. And the work is easy to do. It's not complex. You can find the information. It's also easy when it comes to record keeping. Do you find that those investors, individual investors perhaps, that seek out municipal bonds like it because it is very straightforward, not only in terms of the information, 
but in terms of the reporting requirements. Well, I think you're right, Pim. I th- I, that's right. For those who are willing to invest the time. I like to say to people, do as much time investing in a municipal bond as you would shopping a new car. Think about that. Half an hour for a new car? Half an hour to learn something before you go put a hundred or 200000 or a million into a credit that a governmental body is going to pay you back? You want to know a little bit about it. Well, as people are sort of doing their research for 2019, I mean, you know, you look at the market uh, over the last few days and even on a day like today where we were up, you know, a a couple of percentage points and now we're we're starting back into the red. This is a period of volatility on a day to day basis, extreme volatility, at least extreme relative to where we were the last couple of years. And I wonder where is the safety if you're trying to sort of invest for the long term, but still sort of protect yourself against some of these day to day and week to week moves. Where do you look? Well, talking about safety. So you know you can go to cash, Mm -hmm. get 2%, take no risk, make no gain, and that's roughly the rate of inflation. So after inflation, you're at zero. That's where you would expect to be if you took zero risk. You wouldn't gain, you wouldn't lose, you'd be exactly in the same place. The question is, do you want to do something else? I look at the stock market today. Take the S&P 500 index today. It's 13 times the earnings of 2019. We are a few days away from 2019. Mm -hmm. If that is off by a little, it's close. That's an earnings yield of 8%. The 30-year treasury is at 3. That's 500 basis points of equity risk premium. The last time I looked, every time you could see the stock market for sale, at 500 basis points with an equity risk premium, and you bought it 12 or 18 or 6 or 22 months later, you were glad you did. We are scaled into this market. We think the stock market is a bargain. We think it is worried about a whole lot of serious things, and that's why it's cheap. Well done. Thank you very much, David Kotak. My pleasure. Cumberland Advisors. You know, just to mention, I did a little calculation. If you're in New York State, for example, a 10-year muni, 2.27%. But the taxable equivalency yield there is over three and three quarters of a percent, and that's for 10 years. So 3.75. And if you want to come to Florida, I'll get you a visa. You can come visit me. We will. (laughs) Thanks very much. David Kotak, Chairman, Chief Investment Officer, Cumberland Advisors. Joining us now in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios is Marty Schenker, our Chief Content Officer for Bloomberg. And Marty, earlier today, the Commerce Department released a note saying that they would not be reporting any more economic data because of the government shutdown. And while we know that many essential services in government are up and running, the lack of economic data has got to be adding to the confusion or the consternation of investors. Oh, uh, no question about it. I mean, it's not like those statistics will go away forever, but to the extent that markets take a cue from the fundamental economic activity, the Commerce Department's reports are important, and uh, we'll have to do without them for what could be quite a long time. Okay, well, that's where I wanted to go. Do you have a crystal ball on this? 
I don't have a crystal ball. I only have my own opinion. And my opinion is this standoff is going to be quite longer than a lot of people think. Why? Because I don't think the Democrats, this is an incredibly important symbolic moment for them. They, the Democrats, and certainly in the House, feel that they were given a mandate by the voters to put a check on this president. And if in some way they relent on the wall, which they have said they will not do, um, it would be a sign of weakness at the very beginning of this relationship. So I don't see them backing down, and I, I certainly don't see Donald Trump backing down. Now, there may be... Once uh, Nancy Pelosi takes the realm, uh, the helm of the House, there may be an artful way out of this, um, and it will take art because it will not be science uh, for them to figure out a compromise. When, when does the public, though, uh, sort of start to pressure? I mean, we've had shutdowns before, and it seems that generally the public either uh, doesn't really uh, care as much, or if they do care, they tend to blame uh, Congress more than they do the president. Yeah, well, uh, as we all know, the president famously took ownership of this shutdown. But we have to remember, this is a partial shutdown. Uh, A a number of agencies and parts of the government still are functioning. Um, Essential employees do have to come to work, even though they're not going to get paid, but they will retroactively make sure that they do get paid. Um, So it's, you know, I, I think we're a long way before the public really notices a difference. It's not like this is a prime tourist season where people are flooding national parks um so uh you know at the at the margins there there may be slowdown in various permits and visa applications and things like that but i don't think there'll be a fundamental change so it's a shutdown that a lot of people won't feel for quite some time one of the issues is the performance of the u.s economy so while the economy is strong Political chaos may not necessarily reverberate, but as we heard earlier, Charlie Pellet giving us the details from the Richmond Fed, that gauge of economic activity, it's about factory production dropping. Also, you add in the Kansas City Fed's index of manufacturing, that fell to a two-year low in December. Also, the regional Fed factory gauges, Empire State Survey and the Fed, the, the Philadelphia Fed report, they're at their lowest level in 18 months. That's got to be concerning to a president that is interested in touting the strength of the economy. Well, I, uh, just the other day, the president touted the strength of corporate earnings and basically painted a pretty rosy picture. So I don't think that he is necessarily in the weeds on regional Fed reports. Um, that said, I do think that investors are concerned about these little signs of weakness in the economy in an era of rising interest rates. Um, and that is where, obviously, Donald Trump has taken his, his case. And in fact, even though a lot of people disagree with the way he's going about trying to influence the Fed, there are a number of investors and significant ones who think he's right that the Fed may be making a serious policy mistake. You know, I also want to talk about just this general idea of a functioning government, because, you know, in addition to not having a budget, um, we also have a White House that has two cabinet positions that that don't have permanent uh, replacements yet, as well as a a chief of staff position that is uh, 
uh, still sort of on an acting basis, I guess, with uh, the, the appointment of Mick Mulvaney. Oh, you know, do we get to a stage here where we really have to start questioning whether anything can get done uh, simply because there's not really anyone there to sort of carry out the, the orders of, of the president? Well, I do think that the level of uh, uncertainty emanating from the White House is rather unprecedented, even within the Trump administration itself. It's two years. So I do think that that is a significant factor in the way the markets are reacting. There is no certainty about anything uh, unless it, and even the president's own pronouncements sometimes contradict each other. So if you cannot predict with any certainty what is going to happen in the next hour, let alone the next week or month, yeah, I do think it does have a, a, an effect on investors, and I think it has an effect on the economy. And this is not something that's going to go away anytime soon. Thank you very much. Marty Schenker, much appreciated. Marty Schenker is the chief content officer for Bloomberg, speaking about the uh, government shutdown on a day that uh, Kevin Hassett, the aide to President Donald Trump, says that Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell's job is 100% safe. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. President Donald Trump expressing confidence in his Treasury Secretary. Here to tell us more, Chris Whalen, Chairman of Whalen Global Advisors. Chris Whalen, does it make sense for the Secretary of the Treasury to speak individually to the major banks of the United States, the chief executives, to reassure them that there's nothing wrong when there doesn't seem to be anything wrong? Well, if, oh, hello, Pim, by the way. Happy holidays. Uh, of course, that's his job, but he shouldn't go out on Twitter or any other public medium and then talk about it. Uh, federal regulators in the United States have a long-standing policy. You never talk about banks while they're open. If the bank dies, if it's taken over by the FDIC, then you have to talk about it. But other than that, you never talk about specific institutions or even groups of institutions because it's not helpful. Well, Chris, one of the... There's no upside... Yeah, well, Chris, one of the issues, though, that, that was also raised was that there didn't seem to be any coordination between the Treasury and some of the other federal agencies like the SEC and some of the other members of FSOC. And I wonder how much of that uh, might have actually rattled the markets, that this was just sort of an independent decision, or at least apparently an independent decision that uh, Mnuchin made. I don't really know the details. You raise a good point. The primary point of contact for financial institutions are their their primary regulator, which is usually the OCC at the Treasury or the Fed. Uh, there's no need for this to be aired in public. It's like the, the stress tests. Stress tests should not have a public dimension. We shouldn't have this media circus every year when the stress test results are, are released because, they're, as, just speaking as an analyst, they're not helpful at all. They don't tell us anything. And I think it detracts from the 
the dignity and the effectiveness of senior public officials like Secretary Mnuchin when they get out on Twitter and kind of, you know, imitate the president's political communications on something which shouldn't be about politics. You know, you don't help anything when you get out there. I always remind people of, uh, of what happened, uh, you know, during the crisis when you had Hank Paulson talking about buying bad assets from Citigroup or how Fannie and Freddie were going to issue covered bonds. He almost cratered the markets with those public comments. So it's almost always negative. There is no upside to, to doing that sort of thing. You talk to them privately, you listen, you ask them if they know something that you don't know, and then you share that information privately with the other officials in the federal government, and you take action when necessary. But you don't get out there and just gratuitously make comments because it's not going to help. You know, the big problem here is that the Fed has not articulated what's going to happen as they shrink their balance sheet. That's why the markets are, are seizing up, because liquidity is tight, and it's going to get tighter. And they have not explained that to people. They're pretending that we're in a normal narrative here, and we're not. So I think there's no way to fix that by getting out on the soapbox and making gratuitous comments. All right, but Chris Whalen, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin is a veteran of financial markets. Chief Investment Officer Goldman Sachs, previously Chairman uh-huh. Founder of One West Bank, Dune Capital yep. Management. He knows all this. So why do you think he did it? Uh, I, I think there are times when people in public life uh, believe that they have to do something, that they have to say something. And those are the times when their advisors and counselors need to grab them and say, no, don't do that. Um, you know, Steve Mnuchin's a very smart, very accomplished man. I think he knows better. And I don't know why he did this. Maybe it was because the markets had moved quite a bit. Uh, but I hope in the future he will take a more considered approach. And, yeah, you want to communicate. His job is to listen. Of course it is. The, the comptroller of the currency who reports to him, his job is to listen and to understand what's going on in the markets. But, you know, these federal agencies should only be heard when there's really a crisis. And then they have to act. Uh, you see that very clearly with the way Sheila Bear ran the FDIC. At the time of crisis, she was out front communicating every day. When the crisis was over, that agency faded back into the background, and you almost never hear about them. But that's the way you handle these things. You don't get out there and start trying to guide perception with comments that, frankly, no one's going to understand. They don't have access to the information he received, so he can't share it because it's obviously confidential. So my question to him was, what was the point? What were you trying to achieve by going out on Twitter? You know, I, I can't imagine anything that detracts more from the dignity of the office of the Secretary of the Treasury. And he should know better. He does know better. Of course he does. Thanks very much. Chris Whalen, chairman of Whalen Global Advisors, speaking about Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin and his conversation and tweet storm regarding U.S. banking policy. (music) 
And you know, Romana, many people, they are going to be opening their account statements probably, what, the maybe end of the first or the second week of January, and yeah. they probably aren't going to like what they see. Yeah, well, if they're brave enough to look, I guess. Well done, right? <laughs> I mean, because right now we're taking a look at the S&P 500. Despite its rise today of more than one and a quarter percent, trades at 23.83. That is a drop of more than 10 and a half percent so far this year. So to help reduce some of the panic, we've invited Avni Ramnani to join us, Director of Financial Planning and Wealth Management at Francis Financial, joining us here in studio. Avni, thank you very much for being here. Have you gotten a lot of calls from clients over the last couple of weeks? You know, not that many. We have trained our clients well, and we try to sort of get ahead of the ball and send out emails when we see the market go down and say, don't panic. We expected this part of the, you know, keep your eye on the long term. Um, so we haven't got that many calls. Do you think there's a point, though, or do you see a point where we get to that stage where uh, people do start to not necessarily panic, but to start to worry uh, they, and worry a little bit too much about some of the short term moves uh, and how that affects their sort of long term outlook? Oh, yes. They're worrying for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. Um, but our job is to sort of hold their hand through this time and say, hey, we know this. Uh, and in, you know, inherently in the economy, uh, it looks like there is good signs. Uh, there are not ex excellent signs, but they're not too bad either. There are some structural issues going on right now in the market. But if you look ahead for a year or two, uh, it's not going to be that bad. Mm -hmm. And that's what we tell our clients that for just hold on uh these are the underlying economy is good and this is going to turn around as oh, it usually does okay as it as it usually does having said that how do you help clients manage their risk tolerance not their risk but their risk tolerance because i have a feeling that if your stock portfolio your bond portfolio your investment is up 10 percent, you might say I'm not worried about risk. I'm happy to take more risk. But when you open that statement and you're down 10%, your whole risk profile changes, even though nothing has really changed in your brain or in the real world. That is so true, Pam. Um, you know, when the markets are going up, people are thinking, hey, I can take more risk. This is great. But this is the time when it truly tests your ability to take risk. And I tell my clients, look, in this downturn, if you've lost sleep, if you're having trouble, you know, if you're falling sick or something, then it's time to take a serious look at whether this is the right portfolio for you. And, you know, there, this is a great time to do it. With a market downturn, uh, there are three things that actually come into play at this time. One is that if you've had any tax gains during the course of the year, this is a fantastic time to take tax losses. Mm -hmm. So in the short term, as you mentioned before, that's one of the things you can think about. Um, so, you know, that's one thing. The second thing is, do you have cash sitting aside? This is a fire sale. Mm -hmm. If you have cash sitting aside, you know, holiday cash from grandma's, whatever it is, I would say put it in. This is a great time to get in. And the third thing around that risk tolerance is look at your asset allocation because things would have shifted 
with the equity markets falling about 10% this year, uh, your allocation to equities have definitely gone down. So look at whether this is a good time to do some kind of a reallocation, keeping in mind if there are any tax losses you need to take or any cash sitting aside. I want to go back to, to point number two, because I mean, for people who've already been invested in the market for some time, it, it's kind of easy to tell them, just sit this out mm -hmm. and you know, you'll do fine over the long term. But what about for, say, a younger generation that hasn't actually put any money uh, to work in the market in any sort of meaningful way? If you get someone of that age, say, you know, 30 years old who comes to you and are you are you hearing any sort of reticence to even jump in uh, to take that first step? How do you convince someone that it's safe to do that when they're watching all these headlines go by over the past you know, few weeks or months? That's an excellent point. I think it's a great time, especially for younger people to get in the market mm -hmm. because they have such a long time horizon in front of them that if they look, if this was, you know, 60 years from now, they look back, this uh, downturn in the market would be a blip on the, on the chart. So it really doesn't matter. When there is an opportunity like this, you get in. It's a fire sale. And that's what I would tell them. And the other piece about just, you know, thinking about their risk tolerance, it's you're in this for the long term, unless you want to, you know, keep that money aside for buying a home or something. Uh, you really want to get in right now. Okay. Let's talk specifics. I want to ask you about emerging markets. Mm. Are emerging markets, is that a conversation that you can have calmly now with investors? Um, well, define calmly, but uh, I think that's definitely a very important conversation to have. Uh, last year, if you asked somebody at the end of 2017, uh, in, you know, to ask them to invest in emerging markets, they would jump at the opportunity because emerging markets returned 25 to 30 percent in 2017. So, um, but this year it's a bloodbath, but that's the nature of the game. That's the nature of the market. And when, you know, when you look at asset allocation and thinking about constructing a portfolio, we encourage clients to think about it as a, um, as a car. And different parts of your portfolio have different functions to perform. Now, emerging markets is like that turbocharge to your engine. So it's a very high risk part of the market, but in the longer term, that's the place that is likely to get the most growth. So if you look at that car and you want to provide that turbocharge, that's where you put it. I want to thank you very much for coming in and spending time with us. Avni Ramnani is the Director of Financial Planning, Wealth Management for Francis Financial. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. 
held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.